when I lay myself down. Help me to be the man I need to be. I want to welcome Peter back onto the Holistic Resistance Podcast. Casual conversation about hard topics, I guess. Let's look at it. But I think it's not just about hard topics, Peter. I think you know this, and you can kind of talk a little bit about yourself in a second, about specifically Echoes in Time. But I think what's important about um, Echoes in Time was almost a year ago, as we're approaching almost uh, the next um, season um, of it. But what comes up for me in this podcast is I want to have a, like a candid conversation about how our thinking has changed, how we have kind of just observed and really thought about um, reaching for blackness um, in multiple ways. Um, and one of the things I really want to just sort of unpack about is I want to get to the idea eventually in this conversation around my experience in Echoes of Time, just a little bit about it, and also some kind of fictitious scenarios that we could think about that could come up in the future as we continue to reach for blackness and integrate and bring people of color and black people specifically into a very white controlled historical place. Um, and and, the, and the, the challenges that you take on, but also the community takes on. Um, before we get into those details, if you don't mind, just give us a little more kind of a context. And it's funny because you gave me a great introduction yesterday of your rewilding experience. I'm going to hold on to that. Right now, if you can give me a little bit of like um, context of like your family of origin and since origin is like your immediate family, mom, dad, and kind of where you grew up a little bit about kind of your childhood and like three minutes or less to present, like cool. how you would define what Peter was like growing up. I think it's always good to know. Um, I don't have even pictures of you actually as like an eight-year-old Peter. So... I'll send you. What was your, thank you. That'd be great. Um, of, of Peter's journey to um, where you are now, specifically kind of a personal portrait of yeah. who you are. Um, so grew up youngest of three siblings, uh, two older sisters. Um, my parents uh, got divorced when I was four and a half or five, and I was raised by my mom mostly. Uh, my dad had like visitation rights every other weekend, so I would go there to see him. When I was eight years old, he remarried to a woman that had two sons, so I instantaneously had basically two brothers that I saw um, rarely, but you know every two weeks or so. Um, and then, you know, uh, I'm a fourth generation Northeast Portlander. So my father's 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 father, like moved here in the 1880s. There's a whole interesting kind of like story of, um, the Volga Germans as they're called, um, migrated here from Russia, but they migrated to Russia early from Germany in the 1700s, uh, 1760s to be specific. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But I think about it a lot because growing up here in this town, my dad would always say stuff like, you were here first. You were here first, you know. Um, my grandpa would say that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll, you know, sort of not really thinking about, obviously, the Native Americans were displaced here and, and other people. But um, uh, just that I, I have four generations of family members buried in this place. So I'm very, I have a very deep uh, personal connection to the land here in that regard. Um, obviously, I don't have 10,000 years worth of ancestors buried here, but for, I think, you know, when I tell people that, that I've been here my whole life and that I have a really strong uh, roots here, for Americans, I think that's very rare to have multiple generations in one, na specifically neighborhood. I mean, I grew up in this neighborhood, 
my great grandfather's my great great grandfather's house is literally down the street from here. Um, it's no longer there. It's actually a, a Planned Parenthood building with apartments above it. But um, so I've always just that's been part of my identity. I think is Portland. So you know, over the last decade and a half, um, as Portland has grown and changed dramatically, it's been really difficult for me to kind of psychologically maintain that space here. Um, as I've been sort of getting out further and further into the the woods and things that exist outside as the population density increases. Um, the other thing is uh, I was in the Boy Scouts as a kid and I think um, I don't really think of my family as having family trauma when I compare it to other families. Um, but there was a lot of trauma there early on. I mean, I think my earliest memory is actually of um, being on the stairs with my sister, like huddled with my older sisters crying while my parents were fighting in the front room. And I remember just like the, I, I don't, I, I don't remember what they were yelling about. I don't remember anything. I just have this deep sense of confusion and grief, like just crying, being like, what's going on? I don't know why we're all crying here. What's happening. And just kind of like this fear, you know, um, <laughs> that's my earliest memory, but I don't really think of my family as being, uh, having trauma because I hang out with them all now. I love them. There's, uh, there's always going to be conflict, but um, I don't know if this is what, <laughs> what you were <laughs> looking for, but, um, you know, eventually as a teenager, my both of my parents, I think my dad, you know, he was in Vietnam and um, I think that was a, a disturbing experience for him that he is probably still dealing with late in life, um, but doesn't really open up about it with many people. So, um, you know, looking at, as an, as a kid, I grew up kind of being like, my dad's not a very good person. And then as an adult, um, spending a lot of time with him, kind of realizing the, the depth of his own experience and why he is the way he is and being able to kind of move past, um, the judgments that I had of him and just love him for, for who he is. Um, when I was 16, I ended up actually moving in with him because uh, my mom and I were in conflict at that time. And um, then I ended up leaving his house and running away for like a year and a half. And it's because <laughs> I don't really equate it with tr like that, that I had like a broken home and that's why I left. Um, I definitely think there was some elements of that, of like um, a my whole childhood, both of my parents told me to follow my heart. Just follow your heart. You know, it's kind of like the classic sort of white millennial. You can be whatever you want. You know, that that thing that everybody um, post-oil, post-war boom of the 80s telling all the kids growing up, they could just, you know, this endless whatever, you know. Um, you can do anything. So kind of growing up with that, being like I should follow my heart, and my dad had always wanted to be a coach, but his dad had made him get into like finance and business and things like that. And so he had this like kind of chip on his shoulder, I think, about like, I always wanted to do this thing and I'm angry that I never did it. So I'm gonna like have my son do what he thinks is important in life. And my mom is just, was sort of, you know, same kind of thing. She had, uh, she was a military brat, so she moved around a lot as a kid, had a very like um, patriarchal, like father figure. Um, and so wanted to, I think, break out of that and have her kids do what they needed to and stuff. Um, she did follow what her, her heart. She loved school as a kid. It was an escape from her family. And so um, she was able to, like, find family within teachers and the school framework. So she became a teacher, um, and that's what she did. 
so then when I had con- my conflict with her was as a teenager, you know, I this whole time, my whole life, I was told to follow my heart. Then I get to this point where I'm like, civilization is collapsing. The skills that I'm learning in high school are probably not the ones that I'm actually going to need to survive. Like, why am I learning about these abstract concepts when I'm not learning how to get food and shelter and, you know, the things that I need from the land that we live on? Everything was so abstract and I could just see what would happen if that disappeared overnight. I'd have no skills for that. And that to me, I was like, those are real life skills. And and I'd, I'd learned a lot of those in the Boy Scouts. My first merit badge was basket weaving. Second merit badge was fishing. Third merit badge was horsemanship, you know, so and I got them all in the very first week of summer camp. So I was getting some of that, but it was just not enough. You know, Boy Scouts was very, um, you know, it's almost like school in the way of like read, write and forget or whatever. I forget what the um, read, write, regurgitate, forget. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, you just memorize things for tests. And then Boy Scouts was very similar in that regard. Like we weren't becoming fluent at all these merit badges, but we were becoming fluent in certain things like tending a fire, camping, cooking, you know, the basic camping stuff. I became fluent in that because uh, I went camping regularly once a month with the Boy Scouts, uh, one weekend a month. And as a tangent, I think that's actually one of the foundations of um, working through my depression and other psychological issues that I had as a teenager. Um was just being able to get out in nature and experience that and realize that like there's a whole other world out here that's not human mm-hmm. and it doesn't care about mm-hmm. the human world to the extent doesn't require the human world it's a, mm-hmm. the human world is not a necessity for this planet you know uh, at least the civilized one um so then when i was 16 i was reading all these books about the collapse of civilization and realizing you know i still don't have these skills that i think i'll need more that are more important than a high school diploma at this point in time for me. Um, and that was what my heart was dictating me to do. My parents had been telling me to follow my heart forever. And then I was like, I want to drop out of high school and go to like these wilderness programs. And that was just too far beyond their scope of what was going to be okay. But because of this drive for me to do it, and because I just didn't feel like they were going to support me through that, I was just going to do it my own way. And so I left, um, with the intention of doing that. And I did, um, you know, I was really lucky, um, in that I had, um, a lot of friends whose parents, I mean, I can't think of it. It kind of blows my mind today to think about this, but like I had this family that just like totally accepted me in. And it was kind of like, you know, the, in a sense the rite of passage where like children are taken away from their parents to live with their uncle for a year or something like that. It was basically like I had self-imposed done that to myself. Mm. Um, and I say I ran away, but what I was really doing was couch surfing at friends' houses. I was not living on the street. I luckily had this kind of un, you know support network of the suburbs of just kind of bouncing around. Um, and like I said, it blows my mind to think that there were these parents who were like, didn't know my family at all. And were like, you're an awesome kid. And we think you are super intelligent and we're not worried that you're going to end up you know, doing drugs and eating all our food and, you know, stealing our stuff. So yeah, you can hang out at this house so long as you have a job, you can eat our food. We won't charge you money to be here, but you need to like show some like level of connection to society (laughs) instead of just like mooching and doing nothing or whatever, you know, which is essentially what they said to me, which was fine because obviously I needed money without uh, my parent parental support. So I ended up getting a job and couch surfing for eight months and more more or less um, living at my friend Matt's house and his mom and stepdad became like surrogate parents in a way for, for that. Well, for, forever. Nancy's no longer here. Um, 
but uh, the step his stepdad Jeff, or what we call him Mofo, um, <laughs> that's that was Matt's nickname for him. Uh, you know, he's still in my life and mm-hmm. plays a supportive role and stuff. So it's, it was really important to have that uh, that base for me to go to, and I don't, I I kind of. I just don't even want to think about what my life would have ended up like if I didn't have that. Um, I'm sure things would have worked out in a different way. Um, but that, I mean, you said three minutes and I've probably been talking for 15 minutes now, but <laughs> no. no, thank you for sharing that. That gives me a context of where Peter came from yeah. in a, a very kind of family origin story of that's going to influence his probably influences how you're going to think about our next topic. And so there in, in the, the speech um, that I gave at the auction on Friday, last Friday, we talked a little bit about, you kind of shared about how you reached out and kind of created a relationship over Facebook and then progressed to a meeting in Los Angeles, which jumping cut a lot of calls and Skypes in between. I'm an echo because at the time um, in my van with my cousin Portia and her girlfriend at the time, um, being the first African heritage teacher, I don't know how old, I was not even up to like 20 years of Eggleston time. Um, and I had been prepping myself for this kind of type of work for a long time with other things that I did that similar activity in other organizations. At the same time, each organization is different. It's a different state. This is unique. So I kind of walked in on the guise of I'm teaching earth building. But really that was probably the least important thing I was doing as far as I was concerned. I was trying to understand the trauma narrative and race narrative of how welcoming, how unwelcoming, how much basically white people think of black people. Um, I remember meeting Mindy and you and Jesse right away, right when I first pulled up and Willem's camp was right there and you invited me to camp right there, which I thought was a great idea and it was really helpful. And I remember we chatted a little bit I hung out with some people. I kind of got my camp set up. I may have food, but what I'm getting to is we kind of an opening day gathering where you had everybody come into the circle and you kind of oh, broke down all the things we're going to be doing. I maybe mean, get an opportunity for all the teachers to share what they're going to be teaching about really quickly. You know, it's probably about, I don't know, 30 teachers there, um, give or take. Um, and I shared about my earth building experience and it was fine. I loved what I was hearing was being taught. But it was a part in that kind of presentation that stood out to me about like a, a beach where you can go swim, but with clothes optional, right? And as soon as you said those clothes optional, I thought, note this up, that's interesting. And then I really absorbed the fact that it wasn't just like an adult beach clothes optional. This was just for everybody that felt free to go and swim. I wrote that down too in my, it was dark, I didn't have a flash at the time, but as soon as I got back to my notebook, I like took notes like, can't go to the beach. This is something that's important to think about not just for myself, but very glad that I know that I can't go to the beach and that everyone I would talk to would invite me to come to the beach. If I said, I was heard about this beach thing, they would say, oh, you want to come? It's really fun. That would be their instincts as white people observing me. And their mind made me think they were, this is helpful. So I kept that with me, went to sleep, woke up next morning, and me and Minnie had been connecting. I sat down for like the morning kind of, not roll call, but just kind of announcements. And I remember looking over to Mindy and said, you know, I was just thinking about that thing that Peter said about the pool um, and like me as a black male only black adult male on this site of, I don't know how many people there you probably know more than I do 150 people 200 200 probably. people right 
only African heritage male, first African American adult male instructor. So there's a chance that there's people in the space that didn't think of me, right? So in my mind, many got to those words. She said, I never thought of that, right? And that echoed kind of throughout the rest of the day as I kind of bring this up. Almost every white person that I talked to said, I never thought of that, right? Now, for context, we've talked about this pretty extensively online, in person, and almost every evening, not every evening, but partially the conversation was about this topic. Um, so for me, I want to revisit that because we're going up to the next echoes in time. And I want to not be so basic of like, and now we swim and we're successful. What I want to think about is why I was reluctant to jump in the pool with my clothes off with a hyper white controlled space and also being revealed to myself that no one thought of that as being any kind of a problem except for me, which is a black person in this space. So as that is a setup, I just want to think of yourself as one that is organizing the space and reaching for blackness a year ago. Um, as that was revealed and bring up in our discussion, how did that sit with you and, and kind of what were your feelings and thoughts when we first came up while we were there and kind of how we kind of maybe within five minutes or so of that topic this is a massive topic, how we kind of progressed to where we are maybe not today, but shortly after that echoes in time. Yeah. Um, this is such a good topic. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, I want to first kind of, um, set up the idea of this clothing optional space mm -hmm. and why that was even a thing. Um, because, you know, for years we had, we were on state land for echoes. So there just wasn't, that wasn't a thing. Um, you couldn't do that. Moving to private property, um, gave us the ability to change some things. And, um, my first, so I've been going to Oregon country fair for two years and, um, they have a space there called the Ritz and it's basically like a public bathhouse where there's like 300 people all bathing naked together. And I've always been, uh, resistant to anything like that. And I went there and I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, why do people wear clothes? You know, after 30 minutes of like having all the thoughts that you could think you could have about that, you know, um, it was kind of this thing where I was like, oh, this is such like a, not a big deal. It's this another kind of like layer of separating. And um, people had been asking me, oh, is there going to be like a clothing optional space at Echoes, you know? And I was like, well, I want, I want to make that available for the people who want to have that, uh, whatever that is, you know? Um, and so we did that for the last two years and I moved it last year to the main swimming hole area because the, um, because it was just a better spot and it seemed like there were way more people who wanted to do that than didn't. Um, so that was kind of like the, the idea of setting it up, the idea of, you know, like at the workshop, you were talking about how you're always thinking about white people and white people are just, they, we don't really think about black people or black experience um, and how that might be different for you. And again, Oregon country fair is, very white um and so it just you know and i see black people in the sauna there and so i you know there's this narrative for me that's like 
oh, everybody feels comfortable here. Like, I'm not thinking, I wonder how uncomfortable this person might be in this space because of their skin color. Like, or, it's just, or the emotional calorie burn that that's going them just to that, show yeah. up. Even if they're doing the activity, totally. yeah. they're burning totally. a, a much higher calorie burn so, emotionally to show up in that exactly. white dominant exactly. space. And so it's, not, it's like, the, it's like the, the white perspective is kind of like not even, oh, they're fine. Oh, they're, see, it's all good. Everything is great. You know, like they, they're here. They feel totally comfortable. Not thinking like anything about what they might be going through. Um, so, you know, I think when you said that, it was, it reminded me of the situation I talked about in our previous conversation um, about the bandana where I'm like handing these kids bandanas and I'm not, I'm not even thinking of the cultural context of what a bandana or color might be to this other person. And it's just like this massive ignorance on my part, you know? Um, and so when you said that, that was like a huge thing where I was like, oh God, of course. Like, and also the just, you know, the other things that you said there too about um, the, the narrative in our culture of black people in the forest is usually like lynching and trees and escape slavery and that kind of stuff. And that, again, it was just something that I was like, oh, right. That, like, that's just never, well, I haven't done the research. I haven't made the connections. I don't know this kind of stuff, um, which is, I think, again, one of the reasons why I feel so good about our dialogue is like your willingness to share your experience and um, inform my decisions as a leader of this thing of like how I want to have it operate so that people can feel comfortable there. And I really appreciate it at Echoes. When we had this conversation, you were like, we'll know like maybe, you know, however many years it takes, but like, we'll know we've like hit this awesome level when like I can go down there and take my clothes off and get in the water. And I was like, all right, that's, you know, that's like not the goal, but that's like one of the goals of like being, uh, being able to have that without anything happening, you know, and maybe that isn't even something that would happen in our lifetimes. God, I hope not. But you know, like there's, there's something that, uh, a, a litmus test or um an objective that would mean all this other stuff was already in place mm -hmm. um and so like going forward what i'm thinking about that is like well i think this springs into the other thing you wanted to talk about which was like the community uh communal reaching for blackness yeah reaching being for able to there's a one-on-one -on -one concept, right? When you're reaching for me, Minnie's reaching for me. I've dealt some great, I developed some great relationships with some people in the Portland area that I, I think I'll cherish for my whole life. And then there's like an organizational reach where you can make executive decisions to reach for blackness. And, and the punchline or the, the goal we're going to do is, well, Peter is, is a, a part of the, the leadership uh, team, part of the people that get to think about the whole collective. How are you reaching as a group? Or how are you thinking to reach as a group? And what have we done since Echoes in Time to do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, with Echoes specifically, too, I've been thinking about um, all of the different uh, stakeholders in that gathering. You know, the majority of them uh, are white. And so moving forward, how do I want to transition to something? And how do I go about that? without uh, making anybody specifically feel alienated unless they're just totally racist and I don't want them there at all. Um, but people who are just don't know how to be uh, 
or don't understand their unconscious racism or something, but don't actually want that. They want closeness. Um, and what I've really been doing these last two years is uh, stacking the deck, you know. Um, and what I mean by that is what I've been doing is stacking the deck of teachers with more diversity than um, and just awesome people that I know are on board with this idea. Um, and so there's a vetting process that happens, like who gets to be part of this community. Um, and that way there's, you know, again, it's like the same conversation or, or the similar thing we were talking about yesterday about um, if you walk into a room and there's 10 people and they're all watching TV, you're going to sit down and watch TV, right? If I'm a cultural steward and I get to invite in who gets to be in here, then I'm stacking this room full of people that want to have this conversation. Mm. So if somebody walks into the room and they didn't, you know, they're going to they're gonna end up having this conversation and be in, surrounded by people that are supportive of it if they want, if they wanted to or not. You know what I mean? Um, and so there's this, there's this interplay of me as a facilitator organizing. I kind of said, you know, it's like a chess game or something of like moving pieces. It's almost more like a puzzle or something, you know, where I'm like putting the different pieces of the puzzle together so that, uh, you put the, put the person in there and, and it, they won't have the option. The culture does the work. Um, so I just have to get the thing rolling, get the right pieces and the right people in there. And then it, you know, all the individuals come together and create this amazing space. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like, you know, on some level, I don't have to think super specifically if I'm thinking broadly in this way and bringing in the people that I know are going to be having these specific things. And then it's it's just um, it's influencing itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm moving forward. There's like um, the idea of stacking the deck. I'm really trying to bring in a lot more diversity in teachers and specifically teachers rather than um, students because at this point in time I don't want um, being a teacher is essentially a position of power it's a which might be a weird way of saying it but it's a leadership role uh, and I don't want to invite communities more diverse communities to come there if all the leaders are uh, monocultural or, or just representative of one which in this case obviously is white people um, that's changing a lot. I mean, we had uh, probably last year, I think was just the most um, diverse group of teachers that have been at Echoes, which, um, you know, uh, is huge. And again, I'm trying to get lots of different communities and have ancestral technology work as a bridge for that. But then also, obviously, these conversations are required to have that interplay as well. If I can back up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, just because when you were saying that, and I think it's great that it's the most diverse this last year, and I also understand that you just start this last year, um, but it's still new as far as the Rewild Portland and Echoes in Time as separate entities. But I'm assuming you've attended Echoes in Time prior to even yeah. five years ago. Yeah. Um, and so my question is, why 20 years? I mean, that's kind of a long time. Totally. In, in this modern age to, to look around and not notice any African heritage people and I know there's other ethnicities we can talk about but it's kind of unique especially in the climate of Portland and Oregon State for 20 years to go by 
and I be the first African heritage person totally. to yeah. do that. And I know you can't answer for everybody, but if you could just think with me about 20 years, not like we've only had a couple black people. As far as you know, it's been zero. It has yet to have been proven differently. So I'm just curious if we can reflect on like the container that was in place that you're, that you're really dismantling as, of we, as we speak. Uh, I think this is your third year doing it. Yes. Yeah. So you've had a year kind of like, okay, I got it in my hands. Second year, I'm trying to dismantle. So obviously you get your hands into it. But if you could just take me back 19 years and each year coming in and out and white people collectively showing up and no one asking the question loud enough that yeah. it made a change. Well, I think, um, I mean, we're talking about systemic racism. And I don't want to say, you know, I don't think any of the founders are racist in individuals, but they participated in the um, unconscious systemic racism, uh, especially for Oregon. Um, I can't speak for any of the other gatherings uh, that I've been to or how they were organized, but Oregon specifically was founded as a racist utopia. Um, And so, you know, for a long time, black people weren't even allowed in this state. So there's like this demographics thing here too. Um, And that's something that I want to talk about. Maybe I mentioned this yesterday, too, is, um, you know, when I think about reaching for blackness or or not even that, when I just think about um, diversity, the way that I think it's portrayed or the way I'm meant to kind of look at it as I'm supposed to look at like demographics and then be like, well, the demographics of Oregon match the demographics of Echoes in Time. So we're doing fine, right? <laughs> uh, which I think is I, I think is what most people think, mm-hmm. um, and I uh, it's been something I this specifically because we talked about like what are our goals, you know, for this, you know, um, and so that I again I this is relatively new for me, my thinking is mm-hmm. is looking at this demographic situation and being like, well, what's the demographics? What is the underserved populations with these things specifically, and how does that how can we influence and change that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the the um, aspects of Echoes too, and, and Oregon specifically, is if we can turn this around in this state, I think nobody really else, nobody has an excuse anywhere else to do it because um, this is this isn't I don't the lion's den in terms of racism I don't I don't think it is I mean obviously Portland is super liberal and Eugene and Ashland but like you go outside uh, to the rural areas and it's not that way um, so you know if we're able to do this here where there's this idea that oh Oregon is so liberal they can you know whatever but you get outside the liberal zones and it's not you know Portland is a 50 50 it's always you never know what way things are going to turn in terms of like um, you know, voting or whatever, as far as Oregon being a quote unquote red state or a blue state, I don't know how much that really means or how much that was invented to manipulate people or whatever. But um, just thinking about Oregon and thinking about the people who started it and thinking about me and my thinking when I started Rewild Portland, all this was essentially the same as all of theirs. Um, and it's just through, uh, I think, my age group. Honestly, um, I, I just don't think that the older generation really had any um, understanding of how they would reach out. And I think that they didn't understand like the unconscious bias 
of whiteness and you know part of it is um probably fear of reaching out you know i mean and i just don't have that same fear i think you know you mentioned the um the reaching for the cup uh, or, or staring at the cup as you're moving around and you're spilling all the water. As soon as you stop looking at it, you just get comfortable and you're, you know, then it's, you stop spilling the water. I think, you know, especially this last year when I saw you interacting with a lot of the older generation, it was like they were looking at the cup, you know, so there's water spilling out. They want, they want to reach, they, they're nervous, they're not quite sure, you know. Um, and that was actually like nice for me to see because I was, I was wondering like, What's their deal? You know, I remember like, I think on the last day when you were like, hey, thanks everybody for having me out here. And people were like, oh yeah, come, come back again, please. Please keep coming back. Please come back. Yeah, that's kind of this awkward thing. And I was like, oh, like, you know, they, they want to, they want you to come back. You know, yeah. they want mm -hmm. to have this, mm -hmm. but they're, and, and, and they're like me in that they didn't understand what was going to be uh, required of mm -hmm. that um, to have a more diverse space, you know, mm -hmm. uh, people, I think, you know, white people just don't, uh, we don't have to think about anybody other than ourselves in that regard. And so, you know, even people telling us this kind of thing is, well, I don't really, you know, I don't think that, you know, there's this, there's this resistance to it, uh, which I just don't really have much. I think I like my mind being blown. I think I really like to, um, put myself in other people's shoes and, and, uh, I just think, of, for whatever reason, that's always been something I've been interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, you know, uh, I don't want to, like, uh, make any of the founders feel bad for their unconscious racism. Um, for me, like, I want to dismantle my unconscious racism now that I'm conscious that there's unconscious racism. <laughs> Uh, and I just think that that's a generational thing. I, partly it's due to like um, the liberal social justice scenes or, or groups that I've been a part of. I'm not, I'm not necessarily fully into that either. I think that there's a lot of problematic aspects of that movement. Um, but I think the, the willingness to self-examine definitely came out of that. Um, that makes sense. But, but I'm also curious, too, like, why, why is it bad for them to feel bad for their unconscious racism? I mean, maybe it's fine. I don't, you know. <laughs> like, that's okay, um, right? They can feel bad yeah, about it. yeah. I see. Well, and this is the, <laughs> this is the part that I feel is still, uh, is, is what you bring to this, which is mm -hmm. like telling people it's okay to feel bad for them. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, I want everybody. They screwed up for 20 years. <laughs> I can feel bad for it, right? Because I come and I feel bad just for being there for a couple of days, sure. right? And it's yeah. partly because of the lack of thinking. Right. Now I got to think for both them and their 20 years of not thinking, sure. yeah. plus my current reality of being in Portland. So yeah. I think it's totally okay for them to feel really bad for not yeah. thinking about black people for 20 years yeah. and find this really amazing Echoes in Time organization. But they, they did a bad job when they thought about that part of it. And they can feel bad about that and stay in the conversation. Yeah. I just want to make sure that's clear because... You said you don't feel bad about it. And I'm like, that's totally okay right. if you feel bad about it. Yeah. I'm not confused about them. Yeah. I think they're great people. <laughs> but I also know they screwed up too. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, it's it's the thing of like being willing to uh, just acknowledge that mm -hmm. that I'm screwing up right yeah. now. Maybe yeah. it's a, maybe it's a reflection of that. Sure. I'm just, you know, uh, maybe it's my own fear mm -hmm. of 
the way I'm running things or mm-hmm. the way I, you know, I want to be forgiven for mm-hmm. the mistakes that I've made or, or, you know, not knowing that how to do any of it. Well, I imagine, I appreciate we're slowing this down because I think sometimes, especially when we're going on a record, we're like a, a podcast-like space, um, is that sometimes it feels like we have to have it all figured out and do it all right. That's even my instincts when I go into some of these environments and I give a lot of space for white people to feel things. And I always have to remind them, like, this is with me and you. Like, don't go banging on the black door saying this is the same with how attention and love you're going to get. Okay. Right, totally. And I do that because I'm like, I don't want to perpetuating white fragility because right. they're like, I screwed up with Aaron so many times and he just like, let me do it. And it's not the narrative, but I do know that in order for us to practice this behavior, or yeah. notice it, there has to be some patience on my end if I'm going to show up for that space. I can't do it with zero patience, which yeah. I have a right to have zero patience, but I found right. that even in these conversations, um, the illusion that we, we, we aren't going to feel bad and we're not going to screw up sometimes stops us. And this is also why I appreciate this conversation because I feel like we're still reaching. Like I'm sure we're going to screw up. I'm sure you're going to screw up. But also, I guess the punchline I'm asking too is... Are you willing to stay and keep trying? Because I think I have a feeling that in the last 20 years, someone thought of that and like, I don't want to mess up. So I'll just keep doing what's easy. Right. And I'll opt back yeah. into white space. Totally. And so yeah. for me, I just want to make sure we slow it down and realize that there's no real way to not to do this without hurting yeah. people of color. And I'm in my lane right now, African-American people. And this is unfortunately, to every ethnicity is not white in this sure. space. It's not white skin in the space that can opt into white safety is going to get banged up as as this dial starts to move and and we wake up and we go Eggleston time is a model to think about but until we get there I just want to make totally. sure we acknowledge the pain that's involved including the white people that yeah. decided not to take on this task until 2000 last year I guess yeah so for, for time's sake I realize that we're almost out of time um, for what we had space for today and I want to just highlight a couple of things that I thought you bring up that I wanted to make sure we revisited around like you talked about white people and, and Jenny uh, in the workshop bring up that space. Do you want to speak to that a little bit um, around um, kind of kind of around the perception of white people being able to preserve themselves and their thinking and holding blackness in their mind and um what was the phrase that Jenny said it was like um there's a phrase that you said I don't have my notes she said um it's like What she appreciated about the workshop, one of the elements, yes. was something along the lines yes. was that it gave white people permission to have feelings. That's it. That, thank you. That was the, the, the statement I was looking for. And you, you said some really good things around that idea. Of, we just talked about them feeling bad, not doing that work, and having space for that. And I just talked about like always reassessing myself and my facilitating to make sure I'm not giving so much space for feelings that it disrupts the good work of reaching for blackness and diversifying spaces and then putting a lot of white pain on top of black people when it's not necessary um, and kind of managing when to do it, not to do that. That's kind of a massive question. I get asked a lot of workshops. Well, when do I do and when do I not? And obviously that's a moving target, but 
I'm just curious about the idea of having space to fill because you talked about white people being kind of white supremacy stripping away humanity stripping away filling which kind of forces white people sometimes oftentimes to reach and borrow and, and kind of have this love-hate relationship with people of color and I thought it was a really great analogy to kind of just kind of sit with at the end of this podcast here yeah yeah I just think you know what what it, when she said that what it, what I thought about was you know one of your questions uh, in the workshop was like when was the last time you've held a black man's hand for three minutes, right? Um, and of course, everybody's thinking, when was the last time I held anybody's hand for three minutes, let alone somebody of another race or, you know, any, you know, um, another sexual orientation or whatever. There's like a million things you could, you could run with that. And it, it just makes me... There's so many good things about that question because of the layers, you know. Um, and what it made me think about was just the, uh, in terms of that, like your workshop allowing white people to have these feelings was that part of white supremacy is about removing these feelings. And part of that intention, or, or not necessarily intention, but part of the result of that, or the need for it is to like not feel feel for the other. Um, and so we have turned off this sense of feeling for black people or just anybody that doesn't fit whatever, but even, even white people and white people don't have this kind of connection anymore. Um, and it just made me think about what white supremacy has made, has made us lose in regard, because a lot of times people talk about white privilege as this great thing, but then there's all these things that um, that are destructive on both sides. And I was having this conversation with Willem this morning, where he was like, "Skin, you know, it's this bizarre thing that we've overlaid on skin tone it has nothing. There's no reality to any of it, and so it's this total projection. You know, it's like laying down a line on the road. Don't cross that line. It's all imaginary. There's no lot like that line is meaningless." Um, it's all what we're projecting from our heads. And so we think about white supremacy. It's like all of the things that we've lost, uh, parts of our humanity that we've lost to, to become this thing and to dehumanize the other, but we're also dehumanizing ourselves. And, um, it just makes me, want to reach even more like mm. experiencing that and going oh you know like there's this like marketing aspect of things you know where you like want to affect people's pleasure senses or whatever you know and i think about oftentimes like in terms of social justice there's there isn't a like what do people get out of this and especially like white whiteness or whatever you know like because People want to end whiteness, but then if you're trying to convince white people to end it, they're, they're, you know, it's like just out of the sake of being good people isn't necessarily always going to be the thing that attracts that. But if, if you're just like, this is actually what makes us human, you know, this is the things that we all lost in, in this interaction. And if we reach for each other, we can reclaim what it is to be human. And so you're you're not giving anything up by 
trying to dismantle whiteness. Mm. You're gaining this connection that was lost. Not that there should have to be a carrot necessarily. Do you know what I mean? Sure. But that it helps and that it, it, there's an acknowledgement there of like, it's almost like restorative justice or something Mm -hmm. where you take away the, the concept of victim and perpetrator and you have this, just the, the situation and how it, how people can find their way back to, mm-hmm. to each other. Um, I just think that, that that's, I think, one of the most hopeful and beautiful aspects of like the work that you do and this and this thing in particular for me was like just seeing that happening to other people in the workshop and, mm-hmm. and realizing that there's like way more happening here than the conversation about race, but that it is all about race. Mm-hmm. It is all about these weird disconnections that we've made mm-hmm. um, and that they're all wrapped into the same thing. I mean, I think that's, that's really what it, the, the most powerful thing with, about your question, when was the last time you held a black man's hand for three minutes? It's like, you go through these layers and you realize that it's all the same thing. Why haven't I held my best friend's hand for three minutes? It's the same thing that's separating me from holding your hand for three minutes. It's the same, you know, um, and that's where it's all, that's where intersectionality of like relating yeah. all these things together. Yeah. It's all the same struggle. And it isn't. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's these weird pockets of like dismantling different aspects mm-hmm. of it. Um, I don't know if that's what, Uh, that's exactly what I was thinking and I think you nailed it on two major points and that is you know people kind of frustrated well Aaron we can talk about the Latin Americans we can talk about and I'm like you know these are all lanes that I can't I don't if I'm not I like to stay in my lane and also the punchline is um, once we start building relationships it's shocking how we can start dismantling all these intersectionalities of oppression at once and and kind of work on them together as a team as a family of humans um, recovering from our own kind of ancestral uh, systems of civilization and I think civilization is, is a word that I think is um, oftentimes deeply disrespected on its level of destruction um, in, a, in a way to critique what's actually happening in our culture today um, nuclear weapons is a good example of like where civilization kind of um, camelizes itself um, I would guarantee if I was going to fight you, the, the best way to beat you is not to blow both of us up. But that's actually the logic of totally, right. kind of our system of civilization. I'm not going to go yeah. too far on that topic because we're yeah. just in this podcast. But I think reaching for each other is that basic. It starts to remember that, you know, if we're both in a raft and there's a hole in it, we both start working on fixing that narrative that white people are not saving black people by, you know, working on racism. They're saving themselves exactly. as well and that's what you point it to it's not more of a carrot because you know a carrot gives you nutrition for a minute but if that carrot was water air then you probably should pay attention to it because without water and air all of our arguments are kind of a mute point um, so I think you're right it's not a carrot and we shouldn't be like oh and I got my little non-racist badge I've earned for four <laughs> years it's really about humanity may actually be able to survive my yeah. children can actually have a place yeah. to live that is um, um, represents more of humanity than, than it is right now so thank you for this beginning conversation um, yeah. <laughs> even though it's been a minute I realize that we're just scratching the surface of a lot of things and I know that our thinking is going to evolve and move and I want to check in with you and as we move through this this is not a one shot off kind of conversation this is a continuous check in uh, I'll give this like a drop in conversation that we'll come back to eventually so thank you Peter for yeah. just flying with these questions and being candid and being open and honest in this narrative um, I hope that uh, we can continue to reach for each other 
and not give up even when it's hard and tough on both of our ends. Thank you. All right. Awesome. And night, when I lay myself down, help me to be the man I need to be. At the rising of the sun or the breaking of the night, help me to be the man I need to be. And oh, oh Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dark with her sweetheart. When the troubles of this world come to break me down, help me to be the man I need to be. And the love runs so strong, though I'm far away from home. Help me to be the man I need to be. And oh, oh, oh Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dog with her sweetheart. When we grow together in one accord, help me to be the man I need to be. As we live in harmony by God's precious grace, help me to be the man I need to be. And oh, oh, oh Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dog with her sweet At every waking moment of the day, help me to be the man I need to be. And oh, oh Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dog with her sweet and oh, oh, Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dog with her sweetheart. And oh, oh, oh Lord, I thank only you for giving me my dog with her sweetheart. Oh. Oh.